BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. It's the California Report Magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. Today we're going to start our show with an ode to my former city, Fresno. I watched my daughter bite into a peach. And although she did not have the language for it yet, I imagined her thinking that taste. That perfect juice is heavenly. There was a certain light in Fresno that day, like today, where we work and dream. That's California's new poet laureate, Lee Herrick, performing his poem, Truths, on an album called The Poets Are Gathering. He's taught at Fresno City College since the late 1990s, and now he's our state's first Asian-American poet laureate. He's got big plans for spreading his love of poetry across the state. Governor Newsom has called Lee Herrick's poetry a vivid celebration of the California experience. He even wanted Lee's work read at his second inauguration. Today we're going to talk with Lee Herrick about what inspires him. Lee, you were raised in the Bay Area, Danville, and Modesto for a bit. You now live in Fresno. You also write about L.A. and other parts of the state. You just capture the flavor and texture of California so well. I want to ask you to read one of my favorite poems, which is called My California. Yes, I'd be happy to. My California. Here, an olive votive keeps the sunset lit. The Korean 20-somethings talk about hyphens, graduate school, and good pot. A group of four at a window table in Carpinteria discuss the quality of wines in Napa Valley versus Lodi. Here in my California, the streets remember the Chicano poet whose songs still bank off Fresno's beer-soaked gutters and almond trees in partial blossom. 
Here in my California, we fish out long noodles from the pho with such accuracy, you'd know we'd done this before. In Fresno, the bullets tire of themselves and begin to pray five times a day. In Fresno, we hope for less of the police state and more of a state of grace. In my California, you can watch the sun go down like in your California, on the ledge of the pregnant 22nd century, the one with a bounty of peaches and grapes, red onions and the good salsa, wine and japche. Here in my California, paperbacks are free. Farmers markets are 24 hours a day and always packed. The trees and water have no nails in them. The priests eat well, the homeless eat well. Here in my California, everywhere is Chinatown. Everywhere is K-Town. Everywhere is Armenia Town. Everywhere, a little Italy. Less Confederacy. No internment in the valley. Better history texts for the juniors. In my California, free sounds and free touch. Free questions, free answers. Free songs from parents and poets, those hopeful bodies of light. Lee, you come from a long line of Fresno poets who've been recognized at both the state and the national level. In fact, two of our most recent National Poet Laureates are from Fresno, Philip Levine and Juan Felipe Herrera. What is it about Fresno you think that inspires writers? I do think it has some combination to do with a few things. One is just the heat and the grit of the city. There's a great work ethic that stems from that which lends itself well to writing poetry. I think the poets here are unafraid of work, just like the people are unafraid of work and sweat and the heat. Uh, I believe there are something like over 90 languages spoken here, um, incredibly diverse, one of the most vibrant, rich poetry communities anywhere. I know you've done a lot of thinking about race and identity, and one of the themes in your work is what it's like to be a Korean adoptee who grew up in a white family. Tell me a little bit about how your adoptive family talked to you about race. You know, so I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s, and the adoption discourse at that time sort of mirrored the race discourse of that time from white America or from my white family, which was, we don't see color. We're, we're all the same. It can also have an isolating effect on a person of color in a white family. I'm still very close with my parents. And luckily, they were able to learn with me as I learned and be receptive to things that I would tell them about experiences with racism that were extremely difficult, a, a defining moment in my life with regard to race consciousness was the Rodney King beating in 1992 
and some of the impact that had on the Korean-American community. And so it took me a while to realize that I was Asian-American. Uh, it took me a while to realize that the racism I was experiencing was not accidental and that it was having an impact on me and on um, thousands or millions of other people. Well, there's also a lot of delight and celebration in your poetry. One of the things I find most joyful about your work is when you write about food. Oh, Sasha, we could talk a long time about food, couldn't we? <laughs> this, this, this state is um, such an incredible bounty. So this is a poem titled Abysidarian Love Song for Street Food. All praise for the pozole glistening in midday light by the grace of the woman near the comal. In Southern California, Raul Martinez unveiled a mobile downtown gold mine of Al Pastor by a bar in East LA for the drunk, the artists, the necessary future waiting in line. Praise be to the ice cream truck, glory of the van's slow roll. So praise the van, hut, cart, booth, tent, stall, stand, bike, or truck. I once devoured a Tlaiuda in Oaxaca City, broke down just as the sunlight burst through the heart of a woman kissing her baby's forehead by the plaza. When I say love, what I mean to say is I dream of you through disaster, malady, drought, or this nightmare anxiety pandemic. Now, even in this late dying, let us praise the 20,000 open-hearted vendors in Bangkok and the glorious pupusas in San Salvador I ate on a bench near a dove. Quesadilla, arepa, dupoki, hallelujah. The banh mi right on the outskirts of Hue, the chili pepper, the cilantro songs, praise the Zocalo saints who brought me to tears with a taco so full of music, I almost wept. Under the Beijing moonlight, Baozi is made by angels, vendors with wings if you know where to look. On West 53rd and 6th Avenue, New York City, Halal, or in Fresno, no xenophobe is welcome. Tell me what to eat. Your chuan, your elote, your mouthful of pure zen, like savory, surprising flashes of heaven. Mm, you are making me hungry. Tacos full of music. What an image. <laughs> oh, God bless the tacos. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Fresno has some of the best tacos, too. You're lucky. Lee, tell us a little bit about your goals as Poet Laureate. How do you think you're going to try to bring poetry into the lives of more Californians? The idea is 
two-pronged, um, and my platform I'm calling Our California. Every reading and event that I do throughout the state, I hope to pair with a local social justice or civic engagement organization. I've already got readings booked from San Diego to Northern California and, and everywhere in between. The other way, I'll be inviting any and every Californian to write a poem about their city, their town, or their California, if you will. What do they love about it? What beauty do they see in it? But also, what don't they love about it? Lee Herrick of Fresno. He's the author of several collections of poetry, including Scar and Flower and Gardening Secrets of the Dead. He also co-edited an anthology of Asian American poets called The World I Leave You. He's the new California Poet Laureate. And now we turn from poetry that celebrates California to architecture. Our next story is about one of our state's most recognizable buildings, the Trans-America Pyramid. If you've ever watched the Lakers play the Warriors in San Francisco, you can bet there was an aerial shot of this pointy building. It was once the tallest in the city of San Francisco. You might not know that all of the building's windows rotate nearly 360 degrees. Also, the top 212 feet of the building actually form a spire surrounded by aluminum grating. Some reporters from Cron 4 News climbed to the top back in 1998 to check it out. This is the spire. Oh my God. And 10 stories of metal stairs suspended above. I'm sure you're in better shape than I am. Goodness. Now, even though I've seen this building a million times on the San Francisco skyline, there's a lot I still don't know about this landmark, which, by the way, just turned 50 years old. Happy birthday, Transamerica Pyramid. As iconic as the building is now, you probably won't be surprised to learn that when it was new, people across the state hated it. KQED reporter Carly Severn takes us back in time to the birth of a legendary landmark. Like a pin in a map, the Transamerica Pyramid marks the spot where the communities of Chinatown, North Beach, Telegraph Hill, and the Financial District all converge. And in terms of the city's history, the site that the pyramid is built on is hallowed ground. In 1849, the year the gold rush began, this part of San Francisco was right on the water so close that a whaling ship called the Niantic was deliberately run aground right here after the crew abandoned ship to seek their fortunes in this wild, wily town. The coast didn't stay the coast for long. Landfill was used to rapidly swell the San Francisco streets further out into the bay, swallowing that shipwreck with it. But back when this part of Montgomery Street still bordered the bay in 1853, it was a good place to construct a huge building, one that spanned the entire block. They called it the Montgomery Block. And the history of this building has long fascinated San Francisco writer Hyas Wanheiser. It was the tallest building west of the Mississippi at a towering four stories. 
It was famously built on a foundation of a so-called raft of redwood logs that had been floated across the bay. Like so many places in San Francisco, the Montgomery Block and the people inside it lived many lives. This space was originally built to be law offices with a hangout spot for higher society. But when the city's business folks started to migrate to Market Street, the creatives moved in. They were writers and sculptors, people who were inventing journalism in the mid-1860s. People like Ambrose Bierce, who, according to some, was America's first newspaper columnist. Corporation, an ingenious device for obtaining profit without individual responsibility. And Mark Twain and Bret Hart. The only thing about luck is that it will change. And Ina Coolbrith, who was California's first poet laureate. Were I to write what I know, the book would be too sensational to print. But were I to write what I think proper, it would be too dull to read. Just a block to the north, now iconic artists Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera lived and worked here in the 1930s. It was a scene. It's sort of stayed a scene for most of its life, which ended in 1959 when someone bought it and tore it down to make a parking structure. But the garage never materialized. And so the space remained a single parking lot for almost a decade. Enter the Trans-America Corporation. This business actually started in San Francisco back in 1904 as the Bank of Italy, courtesy of a local man called A.P. Giannini. Later, in the 30s, it would become known as Bank of America. Ever heard of it? Giannini had a lot of financial schemes, and he soon needed more than a bank to contain them. That's when the Transamerica Corporation was born. By 1969, the corporation was ready to make its mark on San Francisco with a new headquarters. They brought in a Los Angeles architect named William Pereira to design it. He was told to create something that would still allow light to filter down to street level. But when the design for the 763,000-square-foot pyramid dropped, the critics hated it. The San Francisco Chronicle's architecture writer Alan Temko called it authentic architectural butchery. And it wasn't just local critics. The Washington Post said Pereira's pyramid proposal was a second-class World's Fair space needle. Anti-social architecture at its worst, said Los Angeles Times critic John Pastier. He captured a broader unease about Transamerica trying to smear its corporate vision on the San Francisco skyline. Corporations that are far more important to the city have exercised considerably more restraint in their architecture than Transamerica, which is blatantly attempting to put its brand on the city. People protested against Pereira's pyramid design, carrying signs that bore slogans like corporate egotism and stop the shaft. They even wore pyramid-shaped dunce hats. These protesters actually included Haya Swanheiser's own mother. She was a community-minded hippie, and she didn't think that a neighborhood was the right place 
for a skyscraper. Neighbourhood residents even filed a lawsuit. At a city hall hearing about the proposal, an attorney for the Telegraph Hill Dwellers Association spoke for those residents in language that echoed the burgeoning environmentalism of the 60s. The curse of this country is the worship of material things. We've polluted our rivers and our harbors and our lakes, our air. We are now about to pollute the skyline of San Francisco, one of its greatest treasures. But at that same hearing, San Francisco Mayor Joseph Alioto quoted the classics in support of the pyramid. I think we have to recognize that uh, the Latinists used to say it, de gustibus non est disputandum, that there simply is no disputing tastes. And the only question is whether it is so bad that all reasonable men must agree. And this pyramid, Aliotis said, wasn't that bad. On the contrary. It will add considerable interest and beauty to the San Francisco skyline. The city's planning commission signed off on the project. And the pyramid was officially coming to San Francisco. Construction on the Transamerica Pyramid started in 1969, a dark year in many ways. This was the year in which three of the four confirmed murders by the Zodiac Killer took place, the last one in San Francisco itself. School children are nice targets. I shall wipe out a school bus some morning, shoot out the tires, and then pick off the kiddies as they come bounding out. The year that you could open the Chronicle and read the Zodiac's cryptic letters full of codes and symbols right there at your breakfast table. The theory that perhaps the killer who calls himself the Zodiac may be planning his next victim based on astrological signs. 69 was also the year of the gruesome Manson family murders in L.A. with all their satanic images. One officer summed up the murders when he said, In all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. The disastrous Altamont Festival outside Livermore. Hey, hey people! A celebration of counterculture that devolved into violence, mayhem and murder. Why are we fighting? Why are we fighting? So I can't help thinking how it would have felt to be living in San Francisco at the start of the 70s, bombarded with so much occult-inflected darkness in your morning paper, and seeing one of the most ancient and mysterious symbols, a pyramid, being summoned in your backyard. But for many, watching a skyscraper go up was also... Exciting. Uh, my name's Larry Yee, um, born and raised in San Francisco. Now Larry is the president of the historic Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association, also known as the Chinese Six Companies. He also serves on the San Francisco Police Commission. But back in 1969, growing up in Chinatown's Pingyun housing development, Larry was a basketball-obsessed teen, running, or often skating, around this part of the city with his friends. Play high and seat. You know, we challenge ourselves and go into some of these vacant buildings that uh, they develop. Walking around the base of the pyramid over 50 years later, with the sound of traffic and tourists echoing off the street corners, Larry says the San Francisco he remembers from childhood, pre-pyramid, looked quite different. Yeah, it was flat. <laughs> there, weren't, there weren't many buildings like this that pop up through the skylight. This part of town was hopping and full of the kinds of characters that had frequented the Montgomery block years back. 
It was home to famous nightclubs like The Hungry Eye and the Purple Onion Comedy Cellar, where folks like Lenny Bruce were playing. Wherever I go, I kill him. But when the pyramid was being built, all Larry and his friends could get was a sneak peek through the holes in the plywood fencing that hid the rapidly rising behemoth. And he still remembers the sheer, constant construction noise. You come home from school, they go, boom. They're pounding down on the pillars. Boom, boom, boom. Initially, he and his friends didn't even know it was a pyramid. They just saw a building being built up and up and then up even further, getting narrower. Uh, We had concerns, too, how far he's going to go, whether could it tip over. And then once they finish, they said, ah, this is a pyramid. When it was finished, Pereira's pyramid had over 3,000 windows, an exterior of white quartz and an illuminated spire at its very top, like the star on top of a Christmas tree. Subtle, the pyramid is not. But decades on, Larry's still a fan of this building. He says for him, it represents progress, the meeting of the old and the new. And he's fond of its place in the visual fabric of the city and the neighborhood he's always called home. I don't know, it's magical. And it's funny. For a building that's literally built on the site of the Montgomery block, where creative genius flourished, a building whose design was so fiercely contentious, the Transamerica Pyramid Center is now thoroughly uncontroversial. Its silhouette on our skyline has become symbolic of San Francisco, Even several of those early critics changed their minds. Henrik Bull, an architect who originally opposed the pyramid publicly and loudly, told the San Francisco Chronicle on the building's 40th anniversary that, like many others, he'd switched course in the intervening years. What's good about the pyramid overwhelms what's bad about it. It's a wonderful building, and what makes it wonderful is everything that we were objecting to. What started out as a corporate symbol has stayed, well, corporate. In a financial district full of office buildings, the pyramid is, in many ways, just another one of them. The Transamerica Pyramid isn't even the Transamerica headquarters anymore. Those officially moved to Maryland. These offices are primarily leased by financial services companies dealing in wealth management and private equity. There's even a high-end members club moving in soon. A 21st century Montgomery block artist's haven, this is not. But here's another thing. For the most visible local icon you could imagine, the Transamerica Pyramid is not very public. Tourists might naturally assume that a trip up the pyramid is one of the city's must-see attractions, like climbing the Empire State Building or the Space Needle. But you can't go inside the Pyramid Center, let alone climb to the top to see the view unless you're visiting one of the offices inside. There used to be an observation deck up there, but it closed in the 90s. Still, the ghosts of this site's previous inhabitants linger here, if you know where to look. If you go to the Pyramid today and walk into the small park at its base, you'll find Mark Twain Place, named after one of the Montgomery Block's most iconic inhabitants. And remember that old ship 
that ran aground here in the gold rush, back when all this was Bayside, the Niantic, it wasn't lost to time after all. Later in the 70s, way after the pyramid was built, a construction team working in the park discovered what was left of that ship right here, pushed down over the decades by a city that has been remaking itself ever since Europeans arrived, buried deep underground. It's said that champagne bottles were even found resting in its hull. And just steps away from these markers of our past is the once-hated pyramid, a symbol of the city's money and power, but an accepted icon nonetheless. That was Carly Severn with a piece from our friends at the KQED podcast, Bay Curious. And that's it for our show this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our team includes Katrina Schwartz, Susie Racho, Brendan Willard, Chris Beal, and Jessica Carissa. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Thanks.